entering the Freedom Hut. The 2020 battle lines are drawn. Socialism versus capitalism. Sanders and others versus Trump. Bernie Sanders is now in the mix. We'll talk about what this means for the conversation for the presidential election coming up and also updates on McCabe's tour of trying to reevaluate and redo his reputation. And Jussie Smollett, we got updates on that, too, coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. First of all, I wanted to let uh, the people of the state of Vermont know about this first. And what I promise to do is, as I go around the country, is to take the values that all of us in Vermont are proud of, our belief in justice, in community, in grassroots politics, and town meetings. That's what I'm going to carry all over this country. Uh, I think the current occupant of the White House uh, is an embarrassment to our country. I think he is a pathological liar every day. Uh, he is telling one lie or another. Uh, And it gives me no pleasure to say that, but I also think he is a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a xenophobe, somebody who is gaining cheap political points uh, by trying to pick on minorities, often undocumented immigrants. Bernie Sanders is running, yeah, that's right. Uh, Personally, I think he missed his time, but I like Bernie because he is one person that, you know, in trade, he sort of would agree on trade. I'm being very tough on trade. He would suffer in trade. The problem is he doesn't know what to do about it. We're doing something very spectacular on trade. But I wish Bernie well. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how he does. I think what happened to Bernie uh, maybe was not so nice. I think he was taken advantage of. He ran great four years ago, and he was not treated with respect by Clinton. And uh, that was too bad. I thought what happened to Bernie Sanders four years ago was was quite sad as it pertains to our country. So we'll see how he does. You got a lot of people running, but only one person's going to win. I hope you know who that person is. Goodbye, everybody. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. President Trump never lacking in confidence. And you can tell he, he doesn't even phase him that Bernie... And I don't like this version of Bernie. I like the one who's all the millionaires and the billionaires, and we're going to make everybody get free this and free that, and it's going to be unicorns and rainbows. It's going to be amazing. And only super rich people are going to pay. I don't like the Bernie that's talking about how Trump is so evil and bad, and that's not fun, Bernie. And unfortunately, that's where the Democratic Party is. And and you get a sense of, one, Trump realizes that they're just going to throw so much. It's not even worth him responding all that much to it although i know the trumpster is gonna he's gonna put out some haymakers on twitter here he's gonna he's gonna lay down the lay down the pain on twitter for democrat candidates as he as he deems fit but there's also this little crossover between and i remember it from the primary between bernie sanders and and trump voters because the democratic party on trade and on immigration has has sold out the working class and Bernie Sanders knows this. And it's really the far left of the Democratic Party uh, that supports Bernie Sanders that on this one issue has 
a whole lot more sense than the establishment, than the kind of Hillary Clinton, now Cory Booker, Kamala Harris wing of the Democratic Party. Kamala, by the way, came out. She was asked about this straight up. Are are you, because she's a top contender on the Democrat side, are you a socialist? Here is what she said. Play 15. Bernie Sanders describes himself as a democratic socialist. To compete in New Hampshire in the democratic primary, do you have to move more toward the democratic socialist part of the party? Well, the people of New Hampshire will tell me what's required to compete in New Hampshire, but I will tell you I am not a democratic socialist. Also, I think that answer is kind of weird. The people will tell you what is required to compete there. No, I think you tell them what your ideas are and then they vote. I don't think that I, I think that she got a little. But I digress. Uh, but she's not a democratic socialist, he says. Well, that's interesting because her party is a party of democratic socialism. This is what people don't want to say in the media. They don't want to go there, but it has happened. I, I think that Bernie Sanders, as much as he's probably too old to be doing this, or why is that so wrong to say? There's a constitutional restriction on being too young to run for president. I know we don't have one for being too old, but I also think the founding fathers probably never foresaw somebody who was going to be 80 in their first year as president. I don't think they thought that was a thing. Uh, but why is it? Why is that unfair? It wasn't an unfair conversation. It hasn't been an unfair conversation in previous elections. And I think that Sanders is right at the, if not beyond the red line, right at the red line for there's a certain degree of energy and, and just day-to-day vitality that you're going to need to do this job. And Sanders may have missed his window. In fact, I think that Sanders feels from his supporters a a push into the into the race because they know that Warren is a non-starter. Warren was supposed to pick up the torch, you know, take up the mantle of Bernie Sanders going into 2020. I don't think it's going to happen. I think I think Warren is her brand is just too damaged. It's too silly. Cory Booker with his I am Spartacus. You know, the Democrats, they may they may warm up to him. I, I think that Cory Booker and producer Mike, we can mark this one down. If you're asking me right now who's going to win the Democratic nomination, I think it's Cory Booker. Really? I'm going to change. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to change this a bunch of times and we'll play whichever prediction is right down the line and we'll just pretend like the other ones didn't happen because you know <laughs> <Yeah>. radio <laughs> but right now if somebody somebody tried to turn nail me down I'd, I'd say cory booker he's got the media the elite left the establishment they all like him and i think that he could play reasonably well in in pennsylvania in ohio in those states right. so you know I, I kamala harris just doesn't have the doesn't have the retail politics skills he, um, he pulled ahead I, of hillary for you uh, who, who, Hillary? I said Booker. He's pulled ahead of Hillary, huh? In your eyes. Hello! I'm starting to walk, I'm starting to walk back from my she's running again. I think it's too crazy even for her. Although you see that there's a, she's you the get queen a, of crazy. Don't put anything past the Clintons. That's true. Michael! Um, you know, they, they actually have a speaking engagement, I think in DC, and I saw this. I, it, it could, I didn't verify this. This could be fake. But you can get a. I'm being serious. I did see a flyer for how you can get a great deal to go hear Bill and Hillary Clinton speak. The tickets are they were originally two hundred dollars and now they're like a hundred and fifty or something. Right? Oh yeah, so, man. they're going to have to bust people in. They're going to pay them. Yeah, no, no one cares anymore. I mean, the Clinton thing. This is why 
that when people talk about Trump and Moscow and the tower and all this stuff, the Clinton corruption is so brazen and so outlandish and so obvious that all these people, all these journo firefighter types out there in the journalist world who act like they care so much about conflicts of interest and the emoluments clause, the Clintons ran a multi-billion dollar influence peddling empire out of the open, pretending that it was a charity. And the, the press had no interest in digging into what was really going on here. $50 million spent on private jet travel, a private jet travel for the Clinton Foundation. $50 million. You know? Nobody, nobody uh, can, can fly commercial? They all have to fly private, the Clinton Foundation? Anyway, don't even, don't even get me started. I mean, that's why the people that are making all this noise about Trump and his dealings overseas, and at least Trump's running a business where people get a product. They buy an apartment or they buy a steak or whatever it is. With the Clintons, you buy the perception of power. That's all that they were selling. But let me get back into the Democrat race here because, you know, Kamala Harris is making this calculation that the Democratic Party is not yet a fully owned subsidiary of Bernie Inc. and the whole left wing Democratic socialism wave. And I think she's wrong. And I think Bernie Sanders recognizes this, which sets up a truly, a, a, a truly, and I mean this word, people overuse it, epic, but an epic political showdown in 2020 over the future of the country. This is not John Kerry versus George Bush, which was kind of, let's be honest, kind of a potato potato. I know people are going to get mad at me for saying that it's reality. Uh, this is, do you want a, a capitalist who, approaches day-to-day issues with common sense the way a normal person would, President Trump, or do you want a pie-in-the-sky democratic socialist who thinks climate change is an urgent national security threat, that redistributing wealth makes people wealthier and and makes the country wealthier? And that's, that's a real choice. And whether it's Bernie Sanders or another Democrat, I think that Sandersism has won in the Democratic Party. And it's not just going to be for the primary. I think that we are facing a question as a nation as to whether we are going to become a socialist country. Now, Trump has stated, thank heavens, we're never going to be a socialist country. And I hope he's right. And I know he's fired up about this. But let's understand that Bernie, Hillary and and Bernie in that last election that was meaningful for what the opposition is going to be that we face. Hillary represented that old Democrat party of the media props you up, a lot of pay to play, a lot of access, uh, the establishment and, and kind of this, this, this rickety, you know, unsteady coalition of all these different groups, identity politics groups and all the rest of it, unions. And Hillary was just sitting atop that Sandersism for the country is socialism is massive government spending, is crippling you and your business with taxation and regulation, all with the promise that what you're going to get, they call it Medicare for all, but let me tell you something, we'll be lucky if it's even Medicaid for all. And anyone with any familiarity about the Medicaid program knows you do not want to be on it if you have a choice. Doctors don't take it. Top hospitals won't see you. There is a a cost 
to this that the Democrats, that the Bernie Sanders wing will not tell you about. They pretend that this is all just going to be better. If it wasn't for because if it wasn't for those greedy, mean capitalists, Wall Streeters, Republicans, even the Wall Street is a Democrat stronghold now. They don't like the Wall Street is, is a Democrat subsidiary now. But I think Goldman Sachs was the single biggest contributor to Hillary Clinton. I forget the exact stat, but it was one of the biggest contributors to Hillary Clinton's campaign of any private company. Uh, might have been number one. But Bernie's uh, Bernie's approach here is going to be the Democrat approach. So even if Sanders is too old, even if he can't win, even if he's not able to get through this incredible field of clowns that the Democrats have put forward. Uh, his ideology, I think, is going to be the Democrat Party's ideology. Play 18. Many of the ideas that I talked about, Medicare for all, raising the minimum wage uh, to $15 an hour, uh, making public colleges and universities tuition free, all of those ideas, people say, oh, Bernie, they're so radical. They are extremely American people just won't accept those ideas. Well, you know what's happened in over three years? All of those ideas and many more are now part of the political mainstream. They are part of the Democratic Party mainstream. That is that is not a, a point that can be refuted. The Democrats have embraced this stuff. They have just they have seen the twenty two trillion dollars in debt. They've seen government inaction over the course of decades, the bloat, the corruption, the waste, the fraud, the abuse, the spending, the regulations, the crushed dreams of business uh, businesses and, and entrepreneurs and innovators. And they've seen all that. And their answer is more taxation, more regulation, a bigger state, heavier chains on all of us. That's their answer to this. And I think if we just look around our own hemisphere, we see what can happen when a government of social justice warriors decides that the wealth should be redistributed first and foremost. That is the single most important thing that the government can do. Uh, This does not end well for us, my friends. This means also that not only is four more years of Trump going to be at stake with all of his policies and promises and an agenda that I very much support and have signed on for for a long time now. But also, the choice is not Trump or your run-of-the-mill Democrat. The choice is Trump or socialism. That's what we face. That is that is what has been set in motion right now. So get ready for the fight, my friends. We'll be right back. And so as the United States stands up for democracy in Venezuela, we reaffirm the solidarity with the long-suffering people of Cuba and Nicaragua and people everywhere living under socialist and communist regimes. And to those who would try to impose socialism on the United States, we again deliver a very simple message. America will never be a socialist country. We are born free, and we will stay free now and forever. I certainly hope the president's right. I know he'll do his part to fight so that he is. But we are at a at a real moment of choosing as a nation, as a people. 
the tide of socialism is rising, uh, yes, there is at least a, an opportunity here for the entire Western Hemisphere to look at what's going on in South America and say, okay, well, clearly Venezuela has gone down a very wrong path, but you only need you only need one one administration to come along in this country and impose reckless socialist policies and do a tremendous amount of damage. Damage that I don't know if we ever really recover from as a country. Keep in mind, China is becoming a near-peer competitor. Some would argue it already is a near-peer competitor. It's got a lot more people than us. It uh, has some advantages built in with its industrial capacity because of, well, obviously the lack of environmental regulations and its predatory trade practices. So I, I don't think that America can be asleep at the wheel as an economic powerhouse for eight years without suffering real consequences. You put somebody like uh, Bernie Sanders, and Ocasio-Cortez is too young, I know, but she, why is she getting so much attention? Why is it that the left is holding up this absolute ignoramus as the premier Democrat voice in the nation, which has been the case for the last couple of months? Ocasio-Cortez has more sway. I think she, I saw something that said that she might be in the top five most interacted with Twitter accounts in the world of all of them. I know. I think she's in the top 10 for sure. It might be in the top five. Ocasio-Cortez has greater cultural media and political sway than anybody else in the party right now, and she doesn't know a thing about a thing. She just represents the, the, the trappings, the appearance, the facade of a socialist future which is why she is so wildly popular with the left in this country that thinks that now that we don't have some major war on the horizon and we're wealthy and things have been going well in this country for at least a couple of years, uh, but overall, obviously, for decades, things have been going very well in America financially. Um, now is the time for them to say, you know what, let's just put the brakes on all that and let's fundamentally, borrow from Obama here, fundamentally transform not just the way the American economy operates, but the purpose of the American economy, which is not to create wealth, but in a Sanders socialist dystopia, it will be to redistribute it. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Democratic socialist and a capitalist? Well, I think it depends on your interpretation. So there are some democratic socialists that would say absolutely not. There are other people that are democratic socialists that would say, I think it's possible. What are you? I think it's possible. I think Do you say to yourself, I'm I'm a capitalist, but I don't say that. Okay. You know, if anything, I would say I'm I believe in in a democratic economy, but gotcha. But the butt is there. Okay. <laughs> so um, so in some ways, whether it's you're coming from, say, Elizabeth Warren's perspective, where she says, you know, she says things like, uh, I'm a capitalist, but we need to have hard rules for the game. What does the um, private sector do better than you know that the private sector, look, government should stay out of X because yeah. the private sector does that better. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of consumer goods mm -hmm. where the private sector works. And by the way, I think it's important to delineate that 
just because you're in the private sector doesn't you can be in the private sector and be a democratically socialist business. Worker cooperatives are a perfect example of that. Okay, so, um, so yeah, you, you got I just wanted to give you a sense of what the Democratic Party gets excited about, and you're hearing it there. Now, I also go back and forth as to how much I want to just go, yeah, like, I mean, like, it's totally, like, Democratic, and I know that anybody can do that, so it's a little bit of fun once in a while, but I do think we have to take this seriously uh, even to call them ideas and to take these ideas seriously might be giving them too much credit in a sense because it's really more emotions it's really more an an impulse a feeling of if only we were able to have the government making more decisions there would be less poverty in america there would be more fairness which is a very easy to abuse term which we remember with obama pay a fair share Right. You're going to pay your fair share. That was always the the pitch from Obama himself. And the Democrats are embracing this emotion based economics, which I think is very troubling because it it is superficially appealing. If you think about this, yeah, you know, I, I feel badly when I see a poor person on the street. Really, if if we just pay a little bit higher taxes, we won't have poor people on the streets. The answer to that is no. But you can see how people, if they're told this enough, and if they're told that climate change is an existential threat to the nation, that all these things that the Democrats have the advantage of a media apparatus that just pushes the propaganda all the time, it's easy for someone who's just trying to live his or her life and go through their day to day to say, yeah, you know, Sweden's not so bad, right? I mean, maybe Bernie Sanders should run for mayor of Sweden but or mayor of Stockholm. Uh, but he's running for president of the United States. It's a different job. We are different than these other countries because of the underlying philosophy we have about the relationship between citizen and state and the boundaries, the individual rights that we all enjoy that the state cannot cross. Once it's all about what's good for the collective, then it's just a question of who's in power to determine what that collective good may be. Democrats, of course, view this as them. If they're in power, they know what's the best for all of us. And so what that means they're going to do to you as an individual doesn't really matter. This is where you get into the troubling and eventually catastrophic deterioration of individual rights that happens in a statist society. When the state makes all determinations, makes all decisions for you, this leads down pathways that are very dark in our history. I mean, this and, and in recent history. I mean, you just look at the history of the 20th century, and you don't want... And I'm not just saying, oh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. No, no, no. I, I mean, look at any country that's gone increasingly that has left the direction of free markets and freedom and gone toward state control authoritarianism and people say well buck look at china and success yeah china has become more and more free market china was a dogmatic communist state that is now a kind of communist capitalist hybrid uh, you know, it's an authoritarian state based on an economic model of really almost mercantilism, too, especially when you look at what it's doing abroad. So if we're going to talk about these matters, we should at least try to do so with some 
accuracy if we can't even get into specificity. But Ocasio-Cortez doesn't know about any of this stuff. All she knows is there are people who are upset. They feel like they're left out. There's a concentration of wealth in what feels like very few hands, even though the overall concentration of wealth for the American people is much greater than it was. And that and that the, the two-income trap, which is something I want to address again on this show, that's a problem, but there's a lot of a lot of things to unpack in that. It is true that people were able to uh, raise, at least in, in the American middle class, you were able to raise a family on one income more comfortably in the 50s than you could today. Uh, but there's a lot to look at as to why that's the case and what government policies today and then influence those economics. Remember, we do not exist. We are not a free market country. We aspire to be free market. We aspire to be a purely capitalist society, but there's a lot of regulation and politics and red tape and and government intrusion into the marketplace. You know, it would be fascinating if I could just get an answer to whether Ocasio-Cortez has read Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. In fact, I would even take it a step further. I, I would want to know of Marx and Engels. There are so many people you find on the left that borrow their ideas. They borrow liberally from Marx and Engels. But do they really understand the text? Have they really learned the history? Do they know what the heck they're talking about? Or do they just pick and choose the parts of it that they think will get them applause from Slate and Vox and the New York Times editorial page and all the rest of it? I think that there's very little understanding on the left of the mechanisms of state control in the economy. They just know that power is good. They're the good people. If they're in power, good things will happen. And the only people that will will suffer are the enemies of the left, the rich white male patriarchy. That's that's essentially the enemy, the enemy. And if you fall into any of those categories, male, rich, white, you know, there there's criticism that comes along just with that even if you're poor and white and male you're part of a of the patriarchy you're part of this of this hierarchy even if you're you know if you're a, a minority who is conservative you're part some somehow you're you're also part of this hierarchy of oppression but we have to take these ideas seriously they are popular in a vacuum they're popular when people first hear about them you want free health care yeah i want free health care sounds great Well, do you know what you're going to pay for that free health care? No, no idea. Someone else is going to pay. Not true. That is a lie. They always tell us about Trump's lies. I want to make sure that we focus on and we spread the truth across the country about the lies that the left relies on for its political philosophy to work, that the left needs as part of its foundation those lies, the lies of socialism. We will stay on that. We'll be right back. Maduro is not a Venezuelan patriot. He is a Cuban puppet. That's what he is. We seek a peaceful transition of power, but all options are open. If you choose this path, you will find no safe harbor, no easy exit, and no way out. You will lose everything. You know, there you have Trump. There you have Trump talking about what's going on in Venezuela, which you may say to yourself, ah, well, you know, how much do we really care about 
what's happening in Venezuela. It's not our country. It's there. It's, you know, for them to figure out, for them to deal with. Uh, well, there's obviously a tie in to what we see going on in this country right now. Because while the Democrats here like to talk a lot about socialism as it is practiced in countries like Norway and Denmark and Sweden, uh, socialism in our own hemisphere has a long and storied history of catastrophic failure. And Venezuela is just the most noticeable current example of that failure, but there are many others as well. Cuba for example, uh, you look at the friends that the Maduro regime has, and one thing that binds them together is they are left-wing socialist dictatorships or quasi-dictatorships. I mean, if you look at what's going on in Nicaragua. That's what binds them together, that they have essentially embraced an economic philosophy, an economic system that just does not work. And when you start to extrapolate from the situation in Venezuela for what's going on in this country, I know that Democrats are going to, oh, they're going to say, you know, it's so unfair and look at look at Denmark, don't look at Venezuela. Denmark has very high taxes on the middle class. They're, they're not going to be able to get around this. Uh, Denmark is not a country where the state has a tremendous amount of control over the economy. The state just provides services in response or you know resulting from or that that are only possible because of very high income taxes on everybody so that's that's the 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 model that they talk about is only possible if the middle class in this country pays 60% income tax what you have in venezuela is when you add social justice into the mix right the social justice rhetoric of class warfare of uh, different you know ethnicities being lumped together by the state treated differently because of the state look at the native populations in Venezuela look at the way that uh, the, you know there, there's different ethnic conflict and different ethnic uh, back and forth in Venezuela just like you every country in the world has this and it's, it's just a question of degree there's always some uh, sense of of a, a class structure that's in place. Of, of different ethnicities within that country, even if, you know, they're all speaking a similar language or the same language, you know, there still are these breakdowns. But Venezuela has some of these similarities with the left in America that we need to be very aware of. And also the way that Democrats approach governance, uh, the way that Democrats view setting prices, for example, for de determining what you can pay. That was one of the big downfalls uh, for the Venezuelan economy was that the Venezuelan government said there are greedy profiteers who are making too much money by producing home appliances. So Maduro's regime came along and said, okay, if you're selling appliances now, you have to sell them for this amount of the equivalent of dollars, right? Whatever, whatever the Venezuelan peso is, you have to sell it for this amount. And the problem with that is, well, now these factories or these businesses that are importing and selling can't make a profit. Well, now it's you must be greedy, so we'll just take over your factory and the government will run it. This is Chavez did this, Maduro did this. That's really getting closer to true socialism 
which is government control of the means of production as well as the distribution of goods. You don't have this in Denmark, in Sweden, in Norway. In fact, in those countries, not only do you have a very high tax burden on all citizens, everybody, you also have a pretty laissez-faire economy when it comes to businesses, meaning that they're allowed to operate in ways that are very free market-based. They have to pay high taxes, but they are allowed to innovate. They are allowed to to operate with less regulation even than our own economy. I know people, and look, there are differences between Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. We're throwing them all in. I know this is true of Denmark and, and anybody who spends any time studying their economy. So if we're going to make an apples-to-apples comparison about different components of an economy today, let's let's do that. Let's see what what went wrong in Venezuela because there are lessons for our own economy. And it's not enough to just say, well, they did socialism badly. Sweden does socialism right. Well, how does Sweden do it right? If you if you even believe that. How does Sweden provide social services in the way that it does that are as effective as it does? And and what did Venezuela do wrong? And what you find is that the American left we already are much closer to Sweden and much closer to Norway than the libs are willing to admit. We already have 50% of healthcare spending, folks, 50%. When you add Medicare and Medicaid and all these other and, and the VA and all these other programs is government spending. So when when we talk about Medicare for all, you know, when you look at the amount of of money that's already going through the system, the government plays a huge role in that. It's government spending. And they're really just talking about closing it up altogether and making the government in charge of all of it, going to a single-payer system. But we're pretty close to that as it is. And we have health care costs spiraling out of control, and, and delivery of services feels like it's getting worse and slower, at least to me, in the last five years. I do think that I think the health care system has gotten worse in the last five years. And that's just from my own experience in it and dealing with it. And they can tell me Obamacare has made it better. I, I don't believe, they being Democrats, I don't believe them. Uh, and I and I could point to all the different studies and all the different ways that they're wrong, but for them it's really more about what they view as fair. To borrow from Bernie Sanders, it's about paying a fair share. So they want people to to do what is fair, not necessarily what is most efficient, what is the smartest, what is the best thing for our economy. And and this is why the Venezuela example right now, and this is why Trump is focusing in on it. Yes, I think he's going to get a foreign policy win. In dealing with Venezuela, that that's a part of this, no no question about it. But I also think that by highlighting Venezuela and and what has happened there, it shows us it is a cautionary tale for a government that had the best intentions, or at least used the kind of rhetoric that would appeal to a Bernie Sanders rally. And this is why there are some Bernie Bros out there. the The only people you see who are defending Maduro is the far left in this country. The only people who say that we shouldn't meddle, we shouldn't be involved in this at all, that I see at least, are far-left Democrats. Because they have a kind of fellow traveler sympathy for the efforts of the Chavista revolution and and how it has now been taken on by Maduro. They feel like they tried really hard to make it better, they just failed. But there's a sympathy on the left for this, because the... The idea of an economy that is too stratified, the the elites getting richer and doing better all the time, and the and the working class just getting the you know raw end of this deal and all this, this is right out of the social justice playbook in this country, and so this is why 
there's also much less talk in the press about how people are starving right now in Venezuela, and it's a catastrophe. It's a failed state, and yet not nearly as much focus on this as, for example, the media's outrage over Jussie Smollett, which we're going to follow up and talk more about later on in this show. So uh, stay right there, team. We'll be back. Team, I like to bring you perspectives from people who actually understand what's going on at the border, and (laughs) that sometimes involves actually going to the border. We have somebody who's been doing some great work on this issue for for quite a while. Uh, John Davidson of The Federalist joins us now. He's a senior correspondent for The Federalist. He has an excellent piece, Why a Wall Alone Can't Fix the Emergency on the U.S. Border. He was just down in El Paso, Texas, looking at this issue last week. John, thanks so much for making the time for us. Thanks for having me. All right, so tell me, you know, anybody who I think understands the border issue knows that a wall is not, it is not a panacea, it is a piece in a larger puzzle. And your uh, written piece here, you identify what else needs to be done, what what the rest of the the problem set looks like here. Tell me a bit about what's going on with with migrants and and families that are coming to claim asylum and, and their view of the border right now. Sure. The simplest way to put it is that we don't have a border crisis or a border security crisis. We have a an asylum crisis. So the vast majority of the problems coming from the border right now, besides the problems of, of drugs uh, and, and cartel activity, which has been going on for years and years. But what's new is the Central American families and unaccompanied minors that are showing up and turning themselves in to the Border Patrol and claiming asylum. There's no amount of border security, of border fencing, of more Border Patrol agents, of technology that can stop that because it's not a problem with our physical infrastructure, our physical security. It's a problem with our our policy infrastructure. It is a problem with our laws. Because when these families and unaccompanied minors show up on the south side of a border fence and turn themselves into the Border Patrol, it's not a security question. The, the, the wall is not stopping them from doing that. And I think that's what gets lost in our debate a lot of times. People think uh, on the right, a lot of people think, well, we need more, more physical barriers. We need more border security and border agents. Well, that, we may need those things, but we don't need those things to stop people who are coming here to claim asylum. That won't you know, I've I've actually done the, the exercise, John, of, of speaking to to senior people in Immigrations and Customs Enforcement and saying, OK, let's let's do this thought experiment. I show up at the border. I say the following. And my intention is to stay in the United States. And I go through this process. If I have basic knowledge of what the process is and I say the right things, what are the chances that I'll be released without any without any meaningful monitoring or accountability in the United States right now? And they've told me it's 100 percent, which I think people need to understand that, that if people show up as a family unit at the border and they understand, as you point out, the legalities of the system right now. They have a, a sure shot of being released in the U.S. interior unless they have a criminal record or a known cartel member or something. That's right. That's right. And the people who do have criminal records and know that that's not going to work for them, those are the people who are crossing, trying to cross the border without being detected. But that's a very small number compared to the people who are crossing the border who want to be detected. And, and here's another thing to keep in mind that I, that I don't know that a lot of Americans who haven't been to the border realize this. 
the, the border walls, the fencing, is not on the border. It's entirely within inside the United States. It's on U.S. soil. So the northern side of the fence is on U.S. soil, and the southern side of the fence is on the U.S. soil. And that's for very practical reasons. Border Patrol agents have to be able to access both sides. Oftentimes, they sit atop a levee. They need to be able to clear debris and do maintenance. So the fence is on U.S. soil. So if you if you show up on the south side of the fence, you've already entered illegally into into the United States. Okay, uh, uh, you're already here, and you're going to be taken into custody. If you have children with you and you know what to say, you're absolutely right. And the border patrol people you spoke with are absolutely right. It's almost certain you're going to be released after a few days with a, an appointment to appear before an immigration judge, maybe an ankle monitor uh, around your ankle. And then sent off to go wherever it is that, that you're going to. And I, I have to tell you as well, every single adult I've talked to on the border who's, who's, who's crossed in has a place they're going somewhere in the United States. It could be they're going to all points in the United States. They know people. They have networks in place. Some people already have jobs lined up. And if you talk to them long enough, they'll tell you that they're coming here to work and send money home to the rest of their family that's back in Central America. Which, right, and I always try to tell everyone who will listen, this doesn't make anybody a, a bad person, but it does no. mean that the immigration laws that we have are being exploited because asylum is supposed to be for people that cannot be in their home country because they're likely to be tortured and or killed. It's not, I want a better job, because if it's, I want a better job, then we effectively have open borders. Now, it, now, yeah, absolutely right. You, you can hardly blame these people for trying to get into the United States. They're trying to do uh, right by their children. They're trying to get ahead. If I were in their position, I would probably do the same. And if I knew that there were holes in the immigration and asylum system that could be exploited, I would probably exploit them. I think it's important to note that the countries they're coming from, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, are often dangerous places. They're impoverished. Uh, but very few of these people are going to meet the definition of a political asylum, a political asylee or a refugee that we have in U.S. law. And the vast majority of them uh, do not get asylum status. If you look at the, the rates at which asylum is granted to, to, to people in this country, it's, it's a small number. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they know if they claim a credible fear and if they begin the asylum proceedings, then they can get into the country and be released on their own recognizance. And that's what's happening in mass. And it's tying up all our, all the time and resources of the Border Patrol agents all along the U.S.-Texas border. Pretty much all they do now is pick large groups of people up and transport them and process them. And all the other things the Border Patrol is supposed to be doing fall by the wayside. We're speaking to John Davidson. He's a senior uh, correspondent for The Federalist. Tell me about the part of your piece where you, where you get into the dangers here, because I think that that's often overlooked by much of the media that just finds the whole crossing process. I, I think a lot of people in the press are just favorable to people coming into the country, using the asylum laws however they can. I, I think that they don't see anything bothersome about this. But even if one takes the position that we should just let in whoever wants to come in, there are risks with the system right now, safety risks. That's right. There are significant safety risks to traveling over the border with children, you know, and some of these are small children as well, toddlers even. I, I, I saw a number of people with toddlers with, you know, 
four, five, six-year-old kids, and then teenagers who are traveling by themselves. And it is dangerous, especially the farther you get from urban centers and populated areas. And what they're finding now are that some of the most remote border stations out in the New Mexico boot hill are having these very large groups, uh, in some cases hundreds of people, emerge from the desert and turn themselves en masse into border patrol forward operating bases that may only have four or five border agents on hand. Well, that presents a huge logistical challenge for those those agents, in part because they have to assess the condition of hundreds of people that have just shown up in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert, when it's in the 40s or in the 30s, it's very cold. They have no idea how long these people have been traveling for. They have no idea what condition they're in. And then they have to wait hours and hours to get transport out there to transport them to facilities that can process them, that can house them, that can feed them and assess their medical needs. And this is why we had two children die in December uh, uh, who showed up at remote New Mexico Border Patrol stations. Um, you know, by the time they realized something was wrong, it was too late. Uh, you know, it, and, and again, I think this comes from a lack of understanding of what the border is actually like. It's very remote in places. It's very dangerous. Uh, walking across miles of desert for days, sometimes weeks, these people have been traveling and showing up in the middle of the night um, is, is a dangerous thing to subject children to. Uh, and and it, it's, a, it's a wonder we haven't had more tragedies on the border than we have, given the volume of people that are showing up now. Speak to me about how the Mexican drug cartels play into the play into this whole situation and, and the human smuggling component yeah a lot of times that's something that americans don't connect the entire cross-border migrant uh, phenomenon is being directed and controlled and profited off of by mexican drug cartels the, the cartels are not really drug cartels anymore they are highly sophisticated international criminal organizations with unlimited resources at their disposal and they have figured out a way over the past decade or so to monetize illegal immigration and human smuggling so every person who crosses the border whether it's an adult or a teenager or a child has to pay a certain amount of money anywhere from two to six or seven thousand dollars now when you have thousands of people coming across the border every day uh, last monday we had 1800 people cross and turn themselves in just in tra traveling in family units every single one of those per people paid between two and six thousand dollars a person let's say the average was four thousand dollars well that's more than seven million dollars that went into smugglers hands just on last just last monday that is all money that is controlled and and funneled into the drug cartels that are profiting off of this cross-border traffic and uh, facilitating it and encouraging it. It's actually a lot easier a way for them to make money than trafficking drugs, and they're engaging in it uh, for the same reason. It's, it's profit, and there's a lot of profit to be made. I really also thought it was important for, the, for context here, the quote in your piece uh, that According to the DEA, the financial resources of the four cartels put together, if they were a country, the financial resources of the four Mexican drug cartels would be one of the top 10 richest countries in the world. Yeah, that's amazing. Exactly. And I don't think people quite realize that, you know, we're not the only actors on the border. We have Border Patrol agents. We have Customs and Border Protection officers. Uh, in some places, we have, uh, you know, the uh, U.S. Army. We have local law enforcement. But on the south side of the border, you have 
profit-driven organizations that have enormous incentives to get people up to and across the border and to get illegal drugs across the border. And uh, they are very sophisticated. They are have 24-7 operations all up and down the border, uh, and, uh, and not just on the south side of the border. They have networks and people uh, on the north side of the border and all throughout the United States. And I think that you can't think about and talk about and debate the uh, migrant crisis problem without talking about the role of the cartels, and very few media outlets will even acknowledge that the cartels are playing a role. John, before we let you go, I know this is quite a thing to drop at the end of an interview, but how do we fix this? <laughs> well, I think we have to stop focusing on uh, a border wall, and we need to start lo- looking at how we fix our asylum laws, how we um, streamline our asylum and immigration laws, and, and how we kind of rationalize them and tailor them to fit the challenges that we're actually facing. I, I, I agree that, that we need more border security in some places uh, to, to stop illegal drugs and to stop uh, people coming in who are trying to evade border patrol. But but the crisis is really about these families that are turning themselves in en masse, and a wall is not going to fix that. We need yeah. to look at And, and it's going to be, I mean, for this year, based on the numbers I'm seeing, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, that's right. On- this year, if if if... If this keeps going the way it's been going the first couple months of the year, this year will be by far the biggest year for families and teenagers turning themselves in. Yeah. Uh, Everybody, this problem's only going to keep getting bigger and bigger, so we're going to keep following it. John Davidson, man, great work. Really appreciated your piece. Everyone should go read it on thefederalist.com. John, thanks so much, man. Come back anytime. Thanks for having me. Team, we'll be right back. AARP is a well-known organization for seniors, but what's not nearly as well-known is that it's pretty left-wing. And do you want to belong to a progressive organization that fought tooth and nail for a government-run health care system and that scripted portions of White House speeches behind closed doors under the Obama administration to help the passage of Obamacare? No! That's why you want AMAC. AMAC was founded by an Air Force veteran and is all about getting you value and discounts while also supporting what you care about, making this country safe for future generations when it comes to our entitlement programs, when it comes to border protection, when it comes to our economy. That's what you believe in. That's what AMAC believes in. Stand with AMAC as they fight the good fight. Join right now at amac.us slash buck. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S slash buck. AMAC is better, better for you, better for America. That was on the president's mind. Then the president made those public comments that you've referenced, both on NBC and to the Russians, which was captured in the Oval Office. Put together, these circumstances were articulable facts that indicated that a crime may have been committed. The president may have been engaged in obstruction of justice in the firing of Jim Comey. I don't believe there is a crisis of confidence in the leadership of the FBI. I suppose that's somewhat self-serving, and I apologize for that. Um, uh, You know, uh, it was completely within the president's authority to take the steps that he did. We all understand that. McCabe is very shady, folks. The more he goes on this book tour, the former acting FBI director, the more we see a, a slimy... Self-dealing deep stater in action. 
And it doesn't hold up. It doesn't make sense. I'm not surprised that this guy is facing federal charges for lying to his own home agency, to, to the Bureau, because this stuff does this stuff does not add up. I mean, he, he was also asked about whether or not, uh, or, or rather, why is it that his firing, or, or the firing, rather, of Comey, why is it that Rosenstein, for example, was part of this? Rosenstein was part of firing Comey, but then McCabe and Rosenstein and all these other guys are completely freaked out when Comey gets fired. Rosenstein wrote a letter to get Comey fired. Does, does anyone want to dig in on this a little bit? Also on the issue of sourcing, and this is what, what I was thinking about a moment ago, McCabe was asked today, I think it was on The View, about whether he had ever been a source for the New York Times on any of these things, and, and you know, he was pushed on this issue. And the problem is that Comey has already said that he never authorized anyone. Comey said he never authorized anyone to be a source on these issues to the press. McCabe says that he is authorized to interact with the press. And when pushed on that, McCabe says, well, I don't know why Comey's recollection is different from mine. This, this is what he said. I, you know, I don't know why we have a different recollection. And he was under a lot of stress and he was really tired and had a lot going on at the time. Now, to anybody listening, this should be a slap in the face because we've seen that the FBI, the special counsel, they don't make allowances for I was really tired. They don't make uh, allowances for, you know, I had a lot going on and I told you the wrong thing. No, what what happened? What happened was you got prosecuted, right? If you said something that was untrue, that was uh, or the facts were, were contradictory to your recollection, if you're Papadopoulos, if you're any of these guys, you go to prison. They prosecute you. So why should the standard for the people making those decisions be different? Why should we accept that McCabe and Comey and others should be allowed to throw everyday citizens, normal folks in prison for being tired and misremembering, you know, and where are all the truth, the truth sleuths out there that we've been hearing from? Oh, you know, why did this Trump person lie? Why did that Trump person lie? You know, why did Roger Stone or why did General Flynn or Papadopoulos, they get on these guys. And I keep saying, first of all, you know, if, if you're talking without a lawyer present to any of these FBI guys and they want to jam you up, they can. They'll find a way. That's their job. That's what they do. So start with that. And then, well, when you're doing interrogation for hours at a time and there are people that are trying to trip you up and trying to get you to lie about something unimportant that you may legitimately misremember and then aren't going to give you the benefit of the doubt, guess what? It's not hard to prosecute you for lying. But why McCabe and Comey should escape that same standard of justice, I, I would like someone to try and explain that one. I would like someone to take the position that there isn't an obvious double standard at work here, because there is. Because there was rot. There was an infestation of a statist bureaucrat mentality at the very top of the FBI and the DOJ. They viewed Trump as a threat to the established order, and they thought of themselves as the mandarins, you know, as the, as the big, important cogs in the bureaucratic machine 
They viewed themselves as the guarantors of that machinery, and Trump was a threat to it, so they tried to take him out. we got more on this coming up. The purpose of the briefing was to let our congressional leadership know exactly what we've been doing. Opening a case of this nature, not something that an FBI director, not something that an acting FBI director do by yourself. Did anyone object? That's the important part here, Savannah. No one objected. Not on legal grounds, not on constitutional grounds, and not based on the facts. Well, that's insane. So McCabe and his tour, which a lot of people are pointing out, seems to be in some way an effort to avoid prosecution himself because he's just getting as much of the anti-Trump sympathy lined up as he possibly can, right? And if he gets enough people to come along and say, well, you know, maybe he made some mistakes, but the real problem is that evil Donald Trump, then he thinks that he'll escape uh, the prosecution that he so clearly deserves. I mean, he lied. He lied under oath about a matter of importance to the government. That is what the statute says. And he's put a lot of people in prison for doing just that. So if other people go to prison, you know, if other people go to prison for this, he should go to prison for this. Um, but McCabe is out there trying to do his very best to throw up all these different smoke screens. But there he was talking to Savannah Guthrie about how when he told the congressional leadership that there was a, a Trump probe, none of them, none of them had an issue with it. Well, that just shows what a bunch of deferential wimps we're talking about here. That just shows that the Gang of Eight, right, the congressional leadership that people refer to as the Gang of Eight, uh, were willing to let the FBI run an operation that should have had far higher bars to clear. I mean, this is insane. The whole thing is just nuts, just incredible. And, you know, what? when you look at it now and you say to yourself, well, hold on, how do they justify this along the way? McCabe claims in this past week, McCabe claims that, yeah, you know, we did this because of Comey getting fired. But the probe was opened long before then. And hold on a second. I thought the probe was about Russia-Trump collusion. Now they're saying it's about Comey getting fired, but the Trump-Russia collusion had started, not the Mueller special counsel, but the investigation into Trump started months and months and months before that. The timeline does not add up. McCabe is lying. There are some instances you can point to where either McCabe or Comey is lying, either McCabe or Rosenstein is lying, or maybe all of them are lying. But these are people that are supposed to be held to the very highest standard of veracity. These are individuals that have had a lot of government power and prosecutorial investigative power, depending on whether they're on the FBI or DOJ side. And we cannot make allowances for their political score settling. I'm sorry. Unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. McCabe is not doing himself, in my view, not doing himself any favors. He is he is making a lot of uh, mistakes out there right now, and he just looks like a like a surly, slimy, dishonest Washington insider in this whole process. And people can tell me, oh, you know, this person, you know, worked for decades and was uh, a good public servant. You know who else worked for decades? 
was a public servant, Aldrich Ames, until he wasn't anymore. Now, I'm not saying that McCabe's a traitor, but just enough of this, well, this person worked in the government for a long time. Guess what? A lot of people work for the government a long time. In fact, millions of them. So the I worked in the government for a long time thing is not enough to give you the ability to operate under a separate set of laws. You know, it's it's not enough for you to just say, well, you know, I tried really hard on all this other stuff, so I'm not going to be held responsible here. Uh, McCabe is also making claims that are just are just flatly untrue. So even if there's not going to be any legal ramifications for that, you know, he's out there on this book tour, the threat. By the way, not very subtle, is he? And it's it's perfectly lined up here. You know, Comey's whole higher loyalty. I'm James Comey, and I just love America more than everybody. That's why James Comey has to be at the center of every major political investigation, because he loves America so much. Please. And then with McCabe, it's the threat. Ah, yes, because we all know that Donald Trump is the threat. How exactly is he a threat? What's the terrible thing that he's done? Why are we supposed to think that all this investigation of Donald Trump was justified? Based on what? They don't answer this question. They never have an answer for this question. But that's because they're lying. Here, here, McCabe talked about how he's filing a lawsuit about his very richly deserved firing. Here's what he said. Play 12. I was fired because I opened a case against the president of the United States. I read the inspector general's report. That suggests the inspector general is in on it and firing you for basically making up a pretext to fire you. Is that what you're suggesting? Here's what I can tell you. I read that report very, uh, very closely myself. I've been writing and reading investigative reports for over 20 years and that report was not like anything i have ever read before an investigative report includes all of the evidence it includes all of the information not just those facts that support the conclusion that you'd like to draw so i have big problems with that report i disagree with the conclusions they drew and that is something that i'll be raising in a civil lawsuit that i'll be bringing against the department of justice so i just need to get this straight when McCabe, you know, when when Comey and McCabe want the FBI to be perfect and beyond reproach and a wonderful institution, and no one's allowed to criticize it, we're supposed to accept that. But when the FBI's own internal processes finds that McCabe should be fired, and fired right before I think twenty four hours before he could have qualified for his pension, then the FBI is subject to criticism. Then we can all look at the FBI and say, well, hold on a minute. Maybe there's something else going on here. I'm sorry, but it just doesn't wash. That dog won't hunt. This is not based on an objective view of the circumstances. This is McCabe changing the narrative as fits his own needs about the FBI, about the Inspector General, about the Russia-Trump collusion probe, about all of it. All of it. These were bad actors, and we see this now. Bad actors in the FBI, bad actors in the DOJ. You know, the left used to have a whole vendetta against law enforcement. You know, J. Edgar Hoover was this boogeyman, and uh, the CIA and the Church Commission, and all these different things that you learn in, you know, Vox.com training programs you know when this is what you learn if you're going to be an msnbc host the only history of america that you're allowed to know if you work at msnbc uh for the past you know 50 years is watergate um iran contra 
and you know things like the church committee here, the CIA, and that the FBI was bad. I mean, that that's really the only stuff other than the social justice stuff that you're allowed to know about American history. So the left used to have all these criticisms of the FBI, the CIA, the intelligence community. I, I worked in the intelligence community. I was a CIA analyst in the Iraq office. So I have a particular sensitivity to, oh, lawmakers will just dump on us as though, you know, all of us who worked there, and I, I didn't join until after the Iraq war started, so I definitely can't have any responsibility for that. But all of us who worked there don't know anything or jerks or clowns. So, you know, they were doing that. Pelosi and company were saying the CIA was engaged in torture, that people should be prosecuted for this. But now John Brennan, Comey, McCabe, all of them are, are heroes to the left because they've, be, they've been very useful uh, me, modes of attack against Trump. That's it. And that's all you really have to be. And, and I just think that McCabe is showing us exactly who he is in this whole process, which is somebody who it's frightening. We should all be frightened that McCabe was in the positions of authority that he was in for as long as he was. That this was a guy who was making decisions that ruined people's lives. You know, his discretion during investigations, his discretion about reports as an FBI agent making his way up the ranks. This is not somebody that I think was was fair in his outlook based on the way he's conducted himself once he got into the, the upper reaches of power. So I'd be very concerned about this individual. And I'd be very concerned about the Democrats being crazy as well. Here is Congressman, I've never heard of this guy before, Garamendi, who is just just losing his mind over the threat. Remember the book that McCabe wrote is The Threat. Now we're supposed to think that Trump is a threat. Yeah, he's a threat to socialism and the CNN clowns. He's not a real threat to anything that's important. Play clip four. I think that what we have here is the president is totally out of control. Uh, he doesn't want to listen to his uh, intelligence community at all. He'd rather listen to Putin. That was part of what was uh, in the McCabe uh, interview. And it appears to be over and over again that he's more win- more than willing to listen to Putin and the uh, Russians than he is to his own intelligence people. It is an extraordinarily serious problem of national security when the president refuses to accept the information from the intelligence community. Uh, we just have to hope and pray that nothing serious is going to take place. Uh, I don't know. I, I just take a deep breath and pray because this man is totally out of control and putting our nation in serious jeopardy. How? In what way? This Democrat congressman is a loon, a loon, totally out of control because because of what? What has he done that's out of control? What has he done that we're all supposed to be so worried about? They they're such they're in such hysterics all the time. The amount of the world is ending pearl clutching from Democrats. I'm just I'm becoming immune to it. I can't even I can't even bring myself to want to spend time ridiculing it the way I used to, because it's just so ridiculous. Nobody who's been paying attention would want to take any of this seriously. Nobody who has been operating from a perspective of trying to get to the truth would, would listen to these people and say, yeah, they sound like they're giving the president a fair shake. 
we're extraordinarily serious problem of national security? Because McCabe says that Trump believed. Who believes McCabe? McCabe's a known liar. And he's trying to trash the president with everything he's got. He has a personal vendetta. He says that the president mocked his wife. He has a personal vendetta against his president. We're supposed to take this guy's word for it? I'm not taking his word for it. Buddy-buddy with Comey? I don't take Comey's word for it. Any of these guys. I don't think any of their word for it. Because they've shown themselves to be dirty political insiders. They've shown themselves to be people that are pushing a partisan agenda in this whole process. So, you know, the McCabe, the McCabe cheerleading section is a bunch of wackadoos. All right, so what is going on right now at the White House? Obviously, a lot of activity with this administration, a lot of major policy discussions still underway in the aftermath of the declaration of a national emergency. Our man Sagar and Jetty is in the House, the White House, that is. That's right. He is the Daily Caller's White House correspondent, and he joins us now from the House itself. Mr. Sagar, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. All right, so you were in the the press spray, which is insider lingo for a bunch of reporters getting to be inside the Oval, right? So you were there with the man himself just just before coming on air here. What can you tell us about what's going on with the with the Trumpster, with the administration, and everything going everything going on in the White House? Yeah, that's right, Buck. Basically, the president had a bunch of comments today. The most surprising was, uh, even though he was signing something that was on the space policy directive, he held his fire uh, on Bernie Sanders. He actually said that he likes Bernie Sanders. You know, that he he welcomed his presidential run, and he he didn't seem particularly phased by it because he said that, you know, there's a lot of people running, but only one person is going to win. And he said, I think you all know who that will be. He also made a little – he talked a little bit about that lawsuit of that California and a bunch of other states are filing against the president on the national emergency declaration. And he said that overall he wasn't particularly worried. And he thought even in the ninth circuit that he might prevail there. Well, look at that. Trump has got uh, quite a bit of optimism, Sagar, but that's, that's not at all surprising. What's the vibe you're getting from the white house in terms of uh, how the whole speech over the weekend was received? Well, overall, the, the White House is mostly just happy to put this matter to bed. You know, they had a shutdown for 35 days that exhausted pretty much everybody here. Then we had three weeks of negotiations. Things didn't exactly go their way in those negotiations. So what they're mostly happy uh, in, in this point is they got their national emergency declaration. They're looking at this as, as, a, as a minor victory because at least they can tap sources of funding without uh, that won't be tied up in court because I think approximately $5 billion of the $8 billion that's available to them uh, is available without the the national emergency. So, you know, they think that they can begin construction on the wall and they can do that as soon as, as soon as they need to, even with court challenges. Do you get any sense of what that, I think a lot of people are like, okay, so we've been through this whole wall fight. We got funding now declared an emergency. Why aren't there uh, shovels and jackhammers and, Earth movers, oh my, going on right now at the border. Well, what they're what the White House would say is that they, our U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is already in discussions here. Is that contracts are being being distributed out? But you're right; it, it is a lengthy and it's a long process. There's some text written into those bills which don't, you know, which gives some of the towns involved the ability to hold up construction on these walls. So it's it's there's a lot of different moving parts, and it's basically any. You know, regular government operation. 
Anything else going on in White House World Saga that folks listening across the country should be aware of? Things that are on the horizon? Anything that you think that uh, we're going to be hearing from the president himself on in the next few days that we should be aware of? Well, you know, what's, what the major thing that this building is focused on right now is the upcoming summit with Chairman Kim Jong-un in Hanoi next week. That's all eyes are, are looking on that. The president himself began his discussion today when it, we're talking about uh, we're talking about Kim Jong-un and, and the expectations for the summit. So that is the main priority. That's the main thing that everybody's focused on. That's obviously one of those things where the whole world kind of holds its breath and watches as such an extraordinary thing happens. Sagar and Jetty, everybody calling us in from the White House. He is the Daily Caller's White House correspondent. Uh, and, and Sagar, just, just so we know, do, do you... Do you ever like get to hang with Jim Acosta? Like, do you guys, you know, ever ever share pencils or anything? What what's the what's the esprit de corps like over there these days in the White House for the uh, the people in the pool? You know, I would tell you it's it's chilly, but there's a level of uh, personal respect that that happens there. You know, we stand next to each other from time to time before we go into to events, exchange pleasantries. That's uh, that's that's as far as we can take it. So he can be pleasant. Okay, that's good to know. Is there anybody yeah. who's like the bad boy or the bad girl of the of the White House press pool? You know, give us give us a little insider peek here, Sagar. Oh man, I, I if I gave you that, then I don't think I'll get invited to all the fancy parties. So in, um, until then, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that question. <laughs> you're you're a smart man with a long and illustrious yeah. media career ahead of you. Don't ever let the radio host get information you don't want to give. Sagar and Jetty, everybody, check out uh, what he's got up on the dailycaller.com. Also, you can follow him on Twitter, and uh, you you need to figure out how to spell his name. But other than that, it is just like it sounds, Sagar and Jetty. Mr. Sagar, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Always good. And thank you also for all your work on Rising recently. You've been fantastic. Oh, Thank you, Buck, and thank you for having me, man. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Everybody from the White House, Sagar and Jetty, giving us the up-to-date what's what. We'll be right back. There are many indications of a hate crime here. They are looking for two suspects who are apparently wearing Make America Great Again hats, though that has not yet been officially confirmed. We don't know what happened to Jesse, but what we do know is that uh, racism is alive and well in this country. There is real evidence of people who have done these crimes who cite that the president has, has, has inspired them. Um, the fact that um, they reportedly said this is MAGA country adds to sort of the, the atmosphere of menace that African-Americans in particular particular people of color in general have felt um, since the, the advent of the Trump administration. And the media has really cast so much doubt on his story, which I find so personally offensive that a gay black man is targeted and then suddenly he becomes the victim of yeah. people's disbelief. It's outrageous. Outrageous. That people would disbelieve somebody lying like this in such obvious and ridiculous fashion. You know, I I do think that there needs to be a reckoning for the media, and it's only going to come if we continue to hammer at their biases and, and just the business model, too. The Jussie Smollett thing shows us, I think beyond any doubt, and you could point to a lot of other circumstances where this is also the case, but... They run with the they run with the narrative they like. They drive as much traffic, as many clicks, and get as many views as they can, and then they just feel like they'll clean up the mess afterward. 
They don't seem to understand our national media. I would note Chicago media has acquitted itself well on this whole thing. Local Chicago media, CBS Chicago, they were, oh, I don't know, doing reporting, talking to police sources, following up on the investigation. It's the national media, the CNNs and the New York Times and the uh, that wasn't the view. What's the like uh, the the kind of bootleg version of the view on the other? You know what I'm talking about, guys? It's the, the other show with a bunch of ladies around a table in the middle of the day. Hmm. The talk. There's a there's a what's a the talk? It's Brandon, no, Brandon. Well, because of Sharon Osbourne. That's yeah, why. you're up. That's why. Shannon Osbourne, because Ozzy, where are you, Ozzy? See, I got a Shannon Osbourne, right? Kind of. Fine, it's good. Brandon. It's not bad. Thank you. Ozzy doesn't want to watch me on the. Show. Okay, I'll stop. But the, uh, the 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 truth is that there's a, there's that show as well, and I think that's where we play that one clip where they're just oh. It's just like terrible. They don't believe Jesse Smollett. It's so upsetting. Guy was obviously a liar. I knew he was a liar. That's why. That's why I really dug in here. I know some nights you're probably team. You're like Buck. Why are you doing a Jesse Smollett update? And I just wanted to make sure that we all follow this at every step of the way. That we're like this didn't happen. Another thing to indicate this didn't happen. And and now everyone turns around and says, oh, but but how could we have known it was. It was so credible and believable. Uh, turns out it was neither credible nor believable. And the people that are dumb enough to, or, or rather, are so stupid that they can't tell the difference, should be held accountable. Oh, speaking of people that, from what we know from the public record, uh, had issues figuring out what was really going on here. We got two Democrat candidates that really weighed in on this one. We got a little before and after for you of Booker and Harris. Play clip one. And Senator Cory Booker said the vicious attack on actor Jussie was an attempted modern-day lynching. Kamala Harris calling the attack an attempted modern-day lynching. Which tweet? What tweet? Uh, the, about uh, saying that it is a modern-day lynching that... Um, uh, sorry. <laughs> Jesse Smollett. Um, I, I, okay, so I will say this about that case. I think that the facts are still unfolding, and um, I'm very um, concerned about obviously... Well, the information still coming out, and I'm going to withhold until all the information actually comes out from on-the-record sources. Um, we know in America that uh, bigoted and biased attacks are on the rise. Oh, there we go. Transition to the narrative you want after you've already run with a false narrative about this event. I would note that uh, there's more trouble on the horizon for Jussie Smollett here. This courtesy of the New York Post today. The feds are probing whether Jussie Smollett was involved in sending a suspicious letter to himself a week before the alleged hate attack in Chicago that has now been called into question. The FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Services are investigating the claim by brothers Abimbola and Alibinjo Osundairo that Smollett played a role in the letter uh, delivered to Fox's studio on January 22nd. The word MAGA was written in red letters across the envelope, and it had nasty racial slurs and stuff in it. Um, let me just note that if that is true, if he used the mail, oh, that's right, then it becomes a federal issue. Jussie Smollett did not think this one through. Uh, did not really give this one the, the attention that it deserved. Uh, as somebody who's going to engage in a hoax, you would think that 
it would be better off for him to at least understand the legal ramifications of what he's doing. But I don't think he did. I don't think he thought this one through. Meanwhile, over at Sirad, Brian Stelter, whose job it is is to always say that the media's doing a great job, and I have a show at CNN to talk about how great CNN is and how I look like Jeff Zucker, but maybe a few more cheeseburgers, and play clip three here about the rush to judge. There was a rush to judgment. I think it was mostly in the celebrity press and among activists and among Twitter people. Uh, I think it was a really careful reporting by news organizations. But it all gets lumped in together at the end of the day. It all gets lumped in together in the minds of many people who now look at this and say, what went wrong here? And obviously, at the end of the day, what went wrong is that he may have made it up. And ultimately, that's his responsibility. I think also what went wrong is that CNN had a lot of news coverage of this without saying alleged or without saying... Uh, that that guy, I, I look at Brian Stelter and I think to myself, anything is possible in this business. You know, I try to take something, I try to take something positive from it. I'm like, oh, if Brian Stelter can have a show on any cable network and be treated with deference and, and, and respect throughout the media industry as a result of that, then it must be possible for any of us to get a show on a cable network. So we got that going for us, which is nice. Uh, but his point here about the reporting on this, I think is, is just incorrect. I, I just think he's, I think he's wrong. Um, and it's very obvious why. I mean, if you look, you will see that there were a lot of not just news stories, but it's the newsroom and then they switch to the analysis. And this is why the bias matters so much. If if the Washington Post on the front page can run Jussie Smollett was attacked and then run seven editorials right next to it about how this is terrible and racist and everything else, they understand the propaganda effect that that's going to have on their audience. Uh, and the lack of skepticism from the newsroom then just becomes amplified in all of the analysis and perspective and all these different ways of essentially saying punditry without calling it punditry uh, when they're when they're openly activists instead of just activists without being honest about that fact. Uh, but the show Empire, which I have never seen, by the way, I do not know uh, if it's a good show or not. I've no, I know it made a big splash. It had a lot of ratings for a while. Uh, but the show Empire is, from what I understand, writing him or cutting him out of episodes. Uh, they're already, so they're getting, this is when you start to see what people really think, right? When, when their money and their reputation's on the line. Sure, I, I know that I, uh, the showrunner for Empire gave some kind of statement of support here for, for Smollett. But when, when you see the, the show, decide that they're going to cut back on this guy and they're going to take a different approach, then then, you, then it's pretty clear, at least clear to me, that we're talking about somebody who is uh, expected to continue his fall from grace. I don't think anybody believes that there's a... Uh, what could the explanation be at this point? That all the reports from all the police sources were wrong? I mean, think about this one. I believe that what we're in the midst of right now is an intentional campaign of delay from not just Smollett and his team, that's obvious and that's to be expected, but from the press. I think they just want to lay off this for a few days and let some of the heat come out of the topic. Let it let it seem a little less ridiculous that they weren't 
showing the due skepticism that they should have. And and then they'll probably in a week say, yeah, it turns out the whole thing was a hoax. Time to move on to something else. Uh, that's the way they do this. I have a question for you, actually, Buck, on this. Yes. There's actually, you know, there's two ways this can go. This guy can either come clean or he can dig in and double down and go deeper into it. Which way do you think he's going to go? That's a very interesting question because what I think he's going to do is try to go somewhere in between where he's going to just hope that the police aren't going to try to bring charges, the idea being that they can't prove that what he said is untrue. But because he brought so, – so what I think he'd like to do is say people don't understand my truth mm-hmm. and this is a teachable moment and yeah. just just protect himself with the social justice jargon and, and kind of move on. The problem is because he brought other people into this. Right. I, I think that's – you know, like I said, if he had just written a swastika on his door – even if nobody believed that or, you know, put a noose on his door, even if nobody had believed that he was really targeted, it's very it would be very hard unless they had video of him to prove that he did it to himself. This is a different situation. He brought third parties into it. And if they're willing to tell the police uh, under, you know, in a sworn statement that he conspired with them to do this, I, I think one, he I think they're going to have to bring charges against them. I, I don't see how they can get around that. So and at that point. He's going to have to plead guilty to avoid the legal punishment. So as much as he'd like to dig in, I mean, I, I see where you're going with that. I I don't know if he's going to have that option. All right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I've been right on this one so far, so we'll see what ends up happening. But the Jussie Smollett uh, almost certain hoax, almost we're 99% sure it's a hoax, folks, right? Continue. So we'll have more for you as it goes on. Global Verification Network is the only dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company. And this is a company that is all about making sure that your needs are met in this space. So whatever size company you have, large or small, give Global Verification Network a call. If you have somebody that already does your background checks, see if Global Verification can beat them on price or beat them on the quality of the work that they do, because I'm telling you, I think they can. Call 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Make sure you tell them you heard about them on the Buck Sexton Show. Also, go to MyGVN.com if you want to do the online route. That's MYGVN.com. They are federally certified as a veteran-owned small business, and no data or client information is ever offshore. It's all done here in the States, unlike a lot of their competitors. So check out Global Verification Network and leave no stone unturned. It's time to get a little conversation going with our friend Raheem Kassam, everybody. You know him from RaheemKassam.com, Fox News, author of the book, No Go Zones, and uh, general gentleman about town here in D.C., very plugged in, knows what's what. Mr. Rahim, great to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. So you, you brought this story to my to my attention about uh, ISIS brides who want to return to their home countries, and there's hundreds of them right now who are in custody in these Kurdish detention camps in Syria. What's going on here? Yeah, it's been a big story dominating the news cycle in the United Kingdom for the past week. And uh, actually, a a U.S. version has just popped up today also. Look, the long story short is this. A couple of years ago, people will remember that there were defectors, um, you might call them, from the United States and the United Kingdom, all over Europe, in fact, um, to the Islamic State, to the ISIS 
caliphate. A lot of those defectors included uh, young women in their mid to late teens who had been lured over there by propaganda videos and who spent the last couple of years um, propagandizing against the West, uh, calling for attacks on Westerners, attacks on the U.S. homeland, attacks on the United Kingdom and attacks on our soldiers. Now it's not going so well. Uh, I would add in a large part, thanks to the actions um, of, of President Trump and this administration, it's not going so well for the Islamic Caliphate. These women, uh, having lost a lot of their spouses, and I say a lot of their spouses, some of them have been married to two or three or four different ISIS fighters over the last couple of years. Now they want to return um, to the United States or the United Kingdom. And actually, our two different nations are taking two quite different approaches to, to handling these, uh, these would-be returnees. And how so? What, what, what's the U.K. doing? What's the U.S. doing? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, well, the United Kingdom has effectively said of this one Shamima Begum uh, that because she is a dual nationality uh, citizen of the United Kingdom and Bangladesh, the Home Office in the United Kingdom, uh, our, effectively our sort of Home Department and State Department, uh, are sort of rolled into one. They have removed her UK citizenship as of today. She is now no longer a United Kingdom citizen and therefore cannot um, claim the sanctuary in the United Kingdom, cannot claim welfare in the United Kingdom, cannot claim uh, asylum or, or to return the United Kingdom. President Trump's administration is taking a different tack on this. Uh, what the U.S. is saying is that, sure, you can come back and you will be tried and you will be sent to prison for effectively defecting and, and uh, fighting for a terrorist organization uh, that was, that was uh, anti-United anti States and anti-Western. Um, and so, you know, I think it's interesting the way, the way these two nations are dealing with these things. President Trump saying more European nations especially need to take back uh, their ISIS fighters and, and um, prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law, uh, while you know, the United Kingdom and other European nations are trying to, trying to keep them out because actually the publics in those countries don't want them to come back in and live at the taxpayer's behest in prisons and then be released into society, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in advance. Raheem Kassam, everybody, check out RaheemKassam.com for his latest writing, and you'll also see him popping up on Fox and, of course, on this show, where he also is a very uh, highly regarded guest host. Uh, Raheem, uh, what do you think, uh, switching gears here for a moment, we've got a couple minutes, what, what did you think about the, the emergency declaration? How did, how did Trump play? Now that we've got a little more information to work with here, how did Trump play this whole border situation, this whole negotiation? No, not terribly well, I'm afraid. Um, similarly to, to, to how the midterms were played out, look, unfortunately, President Trump, and, and you know, some would argue that this is a good thing, but I think, unfortunately, for some of the more um, MAGA-oriented people, um, President Trump does listen to some of the people in the GOP political establishment, some of the never-Trumpers, uh, even. Uh, the Mitch McConnells of the world, so on and so forth. And, and they, they, those guys don't really want to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Democrats. They like to compromise. They're quite big fans of open borders. Uh, they're not quite sure where the party is going to go post-Trump. And so they're just sort of biding their time and trying to tap him along. I think that's what happened in this circumstance, because I think the, 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 
compromise that was reached um, with the Democrats was no form of compromise at all. In fact, you know, Nancy Pelosi might as well have been dancing and screaming from the rooftops um, when she saw the bill that, that, that um, the Republicans have now um, agreed to, that the president has agreed to sign. And it also did the president great damage because shutting down the government is one thing. Shutting down the government for a record amount of time uh, is something that a lot of Americans were in the end paying attention to. And I don't necessarily think it did him any personal harm. Um, but what it did do is sort of underscore the fact that he didn't get anything really from doing that. They don't mind a shutdown here or there if, if it achieves something. But I don't think much was really achieved. And, and I have to say, I think the, the, the emergency should have come a lot sooner. Um, and I think it's a, a disappointment to a lot of people that uh, it, had to, it had to go on for that long before he got there. Always good to hear from Raheem on this stuff, folks, because Raheem has been, he may be the most MAGA-loving Brit of any Brit on the planet, <laughs> but he calls it like he sees it. So, you know, I, 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 I no, tend to agree with no, him on this no, one. No, I don't think for that. Yeah. Uh, who, who, you and who? Me and Nigel Farage constantly fighting oh. <laughs> who's the most MAGA Brit. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'll have you guys. I'll have you guys arm wrestle at CPAC, and we can see who's the most MAGA loving Brit there. Uh, but Raheem Kassam, everybody, check out his latest. He'll be filling in on this show soon, and you can also go to RaheemKassam dot com and follow him on Twitter. Raheem, man, thanks for stopping by the hut. Thank you. Hi, Katie. I wanted to wish you a uh, happy President's Day. You know, it is George Washington's Day here. Washington Day here in New York, unlike the rest of the country, because George Washington, native son of New York. Big up, big New Yorker. That's right. East Coast. He was known as an East Coast one. He was a he was New York's big papa. Okay, that was uh, a couple MSNBC anchors. Producer Mike, is that like a millennial thing? Can you translate this for me? Native son of New York, pretty sure George Washington's from Virginia. Yeah, I'm 100% sure he's from Virginia. Yeah, so. I thought so. <laughs> they so, apparently were not. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and say this right now, man. If if we did a civics test, you know how recently they, they said that I think uh, like 30% of people that they polled who are American citizens were able to pass the citizenship test? And it might even be less than that. Um, but if we did a basic American history test of left-wing news anchors, I think people would be utterly appalled. I think that they would be shocked and appalled in a way where, where they would they would no longer, even if they were Democrats, they would no longer be able to watch these people on TV. I mean, you'll never be able to see this through one way or the other, but I really believe that in my heart of hearts. Like, if you ask Katie Turr to tell me, just just go through the most, you know, where, where did the British finally surrender to America? Like, you know, just go through the most... Grade school level stuff, I think that they would get crushed. I really do. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm not even a history buff. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a novice when it comes to this stuff, but I'm sitting there watching that and I'm like, I, I knew within like three seconds, I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, are you serious? And she's telling me what to think every day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing. By the way, speaking of people who don't know anything, we're telling us what to think. Amy Klobuchar is still out there somehow thinking that she should be running for president, which I think just the delusion that she is of the mind that she should run for president in and of itself is kind of disqualifying. But I think that the notion that she has any real shot at this is crazy town, but she's out there and, oh, she's, yeah, the heartland. Yeah, don't you know? And she talked about, Gun control, because if you're going to be a left-wing Democrat who has any prayer of getting through even 
doing well in the primary, never mind winning the Democrat primary, you've got to be a gun grabber. And for somebody from Minnesota to be a gun grabber, I guess it surprises me just because I know about all the hunting and fishing in Minnesota, but and I used to do some of that myself. But she doesn't have a basic understanding, it seems to me, of the Second Amendment. Play clip 14. Like New Hampshire, Minnesota uh, is a state that values the outdoors. Uh, we value hunting and fishing. Um, and so I come at it from a little different place than some of my colleagues uh, that are running for this office and that I always look at every proposal and say, would this hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? Um, and I would say that these common sense proposals in front of us do not. Um, I don't see banning assault weapons, right? I don't think that hurts in the deer stand has no idea what she's talking about. The Second Amendment is not, never was, and never will be about hunting. Hunting and the ability to have firearms for hunting is is a nice byproduct of the Second Amendment, but the Second Amendment is not about hunting. It is about the right of the citizenry to keep and bear arms as a check against government tyranny. Now, libs can laugh about that all they want. That is why it exists. That is why there is a Second Amendment and the right to defend oneself, defend one's home, defend one's hearth, all that stuff. So it is absolutely not about the right to go shoot, you know, white-tailed deer and pheasants and things like that. I'm actually going uh, sporting clay shooting on Sunday, I'll have you know. So there's that. I have a problem, though, when I go sporting clay shooting. I am uh, I'm cross-dominant. And so I, my left eye is my dominant eye, even though I'm right-handed. And so I have to deal with being a cross-dominant shooter, which for sporting clays is really annoying because you have to either – you can either become a left-handed shooter with a long – it doesn't matter with pistol because you can just tilt your head and, and the pistol – that's why I've always been – pistol shooting is my favorite. Uh, but if you're a cross-eyed dominant shooter and you're going after sporting clays or you're going bird hunting, uh, you need to – with the shotgun, you need to compensate and either go left-handed or – um, or, you know, close one eye and use your other eye. And it's just, uh, it's another thing. But you don't need to know about my problems. So uh, it's going to be fun, though, on Sunday for sure. But uh, Amy, Amy Klobuchar doesn't really understand that gun control is not about hunting. So once again, we have libs that want to control aspects of our lives without understanding those aspects in any meaningful sense. They just know that control is appealing to them. Telling us what to do is appealing to them. And that is... Uh, that That is all that they think they have to know. And they know that also the left-wing gun grabbers get excited about this stuff. So even though the chance of any legislation happening, I think, is 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 small, it's always there. And if they could, they would outlaw all semi- semi-automatic rifles. Just remember that, which would affect Uncle Dick and the deer stand, by the way. Team Buck, it's time for roll call. Roll call time. Ooh, yeah. Roll call. I got to get excited about it every time because roll call is oh so much fun. Let's get to it. We have first up Lucinda. Lucinda wrote into Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And here's what Lucinda has to say. I was listening to you talk about the two movies you watched last weekend I will probably wait to see Into the Spider-Verse. However, I did see The Witch, and I'm traumatized from it. 
Perhaps I should not have watched it myself, uh, but it is everything scary that I can imagine. I'm actually a little sorry I watched it. If you can handle devil goat stuff, I recommend it. The only other movie that I am sorry I watched was Rosemary's Baby. I really do enjoy listening to you. You give me hope that not everyone has gone crazy. Shields high. Well, first of all, Lucinda, cool name. Not always nice to have an unusual and and memorable name. Says the guy named Buck Sexton. Buckman Sexton. Uh, for those who like to come after me on Twitter for having a weird name, it's Buckman. It's a family name. Um, as for the movies, uh, as for the movies that I have recommended and, and that we are, well, I should say, I don't even know if I really recommended them so much as I just mentioned them. Brandon, have you seen, let me ask you, have you seen The Witch? I have. Scary, right? I mean, I think uh, it's well done for the genre. You're, you're talking to somebody who's desensitized. I've watched all the 80s horror, some of the most, you know, human centipede kind of movies. It was So it was all right. It's not super violent or like slasher stuff, but it is. It's, it's creepy, but I, it was, for my horror opinion, for whatever that means, uh, a little overhyped, but it was still, it was good. It was wow, good. look at you. Hey, when it comes what, to horror, I gotta actually, be honest. What makes the hair stand up on the back of Brandon's neck for a movie? All right, that's what I want to know. What, what, what gets it done for you? It's gotta be, I think, original. And just like maybe a little bit kind of real that like no this I need a movie dude I need oh a movie, I thought a... you were asking okay no hmm let me think about that well I, I will tell you my favorite movie of all time is yeah. Killer Killer Clowns from Outer Space wow uh, have you is ever Mike, seen it is Mike there to make fun of you in person because that was an amazing revelation <laughs> he really, stepped out for a second that's really a movie yeah oh my god they have popcorn right. guns and they suck blood out of crazy straws out of these cotton candy cocoons it's that's insane dude I don't even know how you do it I'll just say this man <laughs> I'll just I, I did see I did once see Leprechaun 5 Leprechaun in the Hood in the Hood yep. and I saw Leprechaun I think it was 4 Leprechaun in Space uh huh which was another one. And I thought, I'm the leprechaun. It is, dude, when when Wayne in Wayne's World 2 did the whole leprechaun thing, <laughs> I it did really stick with me because, yeah, it was, anyway. I'm just, if you're somebody like me who thinks that the whole demonic possession thing is, is scary, you will find The Witch to be a scary movie. It is bleak as well, though. It's relentless. Like, there's nothing happy or funny or, or pretty in the movie. It's pretty much just one long ride and, like, one long descent into hell. Anyway, Lucinda, I'm sorry that you got creeped out by it. I, I did warn you, but you had seen it before I told you, I think. Uh, as for next on Roll Call, Randy writes, Don Williams, Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, and I don't know why, but nobody has said Waylon Jennings, and that gives me the sads. I'm assuming... Randy, this is for my country music playlist. Now, I will say, guys, I, I, my country music playlist is pretty full right now. So I appreciate all the advice. I did ask for a, a team shout-out of, of country music suggestions. That said, uh, I got like 100 songs in my playlist, so I'm, I'm good. I'm good right now. I appreciate it. We will... You know, move on to other. Maybe I should ask for stock tips from the team or something. You know, I should. I should really. I. What, what do you call it when you use uh, every crowd crowdsource? I should crowdsource all kinds of things because the people who listen to this show are full of incredible knowledge about all kinds of stuff. Kimberly writes: Wonder if Jesse or Jussie, rather, that was me. I misread that. Was in cahoots with Booker and Harris to get publicity for their anti-lynching bill. Harris is buddy-buddy with the entire Jussie family. Huh. 
What did I don't know anything? The lynching bill is this? I I, I assume that lynching. Kamala Harris's anti-lynching bill gets a second chance at becoming law. Well, this is okay. Okay, you know what? Instead of just saying I don't know, team, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us all up to speed here because I did not know about this. So let's see what it says. Senator uh, Kamala uh, Kamala Harris's effort to make lynching a federal crime received new life Thursday when the Senate unanimously passed her bill to outlaw it. The bill, which is co-authored by two other African-Americans in the Senate, Democrat Cory Booker of New Jersey, Republican Tim Scott of South Carolina, unanimously passed the Senate late last year, but the House did not take it up before the congressional Senate ended and the bill uh, session ended and uh, and the bill died. The Senate passed Harris's legislation unanimously again Thursday. With Democrats in control of the House, it stands a strong chance of making it to President Trump's desk. It criminalized criminal. Uh, it criminalizes attacks based on gender, sexual orientation, gender identity or disability if they involve crossing state lines or are facilitated by the Internet, phone or mail. Isn't that stuff already all illegal? I'm just sort of confused. I feel like this is one of these laws that is outlawing stuff that's already illegal. But, yeah, of course, everybody's everybody is anti lynching, but lynching involves vigilante um hate crime essentially right it's it's and it can be a murder so it would be a hate crime murder i i just don't understand the specifics of what this makes illegal or makes a federal crime that's not really already a federal crime um but i'd have to look into the bill but yeah you guys are right that are bringing up the anti-lynching bill this is a thing and it's one that i just learned about now so thank you for bringing to my attention robert writes buck i love your show one bit of criticism Uh uh-oh i can't stand the lame analogies Nine times out of ten, the topic discussed does not need an analogy. Unless you have a few random lefties listening, I'm guessing your audience does not need all the analogies to get the point. I listen on KLBJ, and you are by far the best show in the last ten years in this time slot. That said, I uh, I don't want I don't want another analogy, or I'm going to go. F- okay, okay, all right, Robert, Robert, buddy, loud and clear, loud and clear. I'm going to take. I'm going to I'm going to back off on. Back off on the analogy. Sometimes the analogy comes from a place of me trying to kind of collect my thoughts as much as it is to explain something to folks who are, who are listening. Uh, it's a way to to consolidate my own thinking. I do think that the anal- analogies, for example, about the wall and a lock on a door can be helpful. But, I, you know, it's not worth overplaying it. That said, I will, out of deference to you and our wonderful KLBJ Austin audience, I will avoid uh, unnecessary analogies. Uh, But give me some credit. I also avoid, as much as anybody can that speaks for three hours without a script, uh, I avoid filler words pretty well. Pretty. I'm not saying I'm perfect. Some of you can say, you say like, and I mean, and uh, yes, I know. But if you listen to another radio show and you listen to this radio show, I will just tell you that my transcript has a lot less... Uh, yeah, like, uh, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, like, uh, a lot of that out there and the rest of Radio Land. Just, I'm just saying, just saying, give credit where it's due. Brent writes, watching you live on Shannon Bream. Get it, Buck. Rooting, rooting for you. Well, thank you so much, Brent. Appreciate that. I had fun last night. I was with my, uh, my buddy, Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA was also on. The libs must run and hide in fear when Buck and Charlie are on the same segment at the same time. 
Leonard writes, your Robert O'Rourke isn't bad, but it needs to be breathier. Also, observe his speech cadence. He pauses breathlessly about about every eight, six to eight words. He sort of he sort of does this thing where he's just like so excited when he's talking and it's like he just worked out. But he didn't. No, I, I agree. With you. My, my O'Rourke is pretty good. We all know that. All right. My Beto is pretty decent. But uh, I can certainly work in it a little bit. Sometimes it sounds a little too much like the guy from Napoleon Dynamite. And I know that. But he kind of reminds me of that guy. And, and impersonation, often you peg it to somebody that is a more extreme version of the person that you're trying to impersonate. Christine writes... Uh, Talking about AOC, she wants me to pay the taxes, not her. Well, Christine, that is true. She does not want to pay the taxes herself. She wants everybody else. This is true of libs in general, though. They want other people to have to pick up the bill. They do not want to pick up the bill themselves. Susan writes, hey, Buck, I love your show. Susan, we love you. Thank you for listening. She's a podcast listener. She writes, my question is, can and will they be able to prosecute or do something about Smollett creating a false hate crime and false statement? I mean, at least get him to pay back some of the taxpayers' money wasted. Shields high, Sue. Sue, shields high to you. And yes, they can do something about this. I don't know if they will. They should. But I think that there's going to be, because the media is going to run interference and they're going to back office, I think that there's going to be a real effort to say, well, he's suffered enough and let's not make him suffer more and all, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just, I would rather that not be the case. But we will have to see. But Susan, because uh, I think it's important. I think it sends a very bad message if somebody can get away with doing what he did in the way that he did it. The egregious, planned out nature of it, too. And the drain on resources, the drain on resources that comes as a result of, of this. So um, you, you've got it. If you're not going to draw a line in the sand on this one, if you're not going to try and, and and hold someone accountable for a fake hate crime in this instance, when are you going to do it? All right, team, that's going to be this episode of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for listening. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure to have you hanging out with me in the hut. I got a lot more in mind already for the rest of the week, so uh, be sure to tune in however you tune in. Talk to you tomorrow. Shields high.